Oh boy, you ready for this? Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradza, and on this episode of the Your Life, Your Terms show, we are talking Bitcoin. Not only are we talking Bitcoin, we are talking with the author of one of the best books I've read in maybe at least five years. It, it's got to be one of the, my top five favorite books of all time. When it comes to the subject of money, it's right up there in the top one or two books of all time. The author's name is Seyfedin Amus. The book is called The Bitcoin Standard. After re I think about halfway through, not even, I think about less than 100 pages into this book, I decided this was the best book that I had ever read on the subject and that I was going to have to reread it. I immediately started thinking, how am I going to get the author on this podcast to share this message with all of you and all of us together? Reached out to him, managed to convince him to come onto the podcast. Turns out he's a fantastic guy, great guy. We had a, we had a good chat. And so he is on this episode. So the author of the Bitcoin Standard, we have him for you. And listen, I've over the years, we've had a lot of friends talk to me about Bitcoin and I've kind of dismissed it. And my primary, I, I guess the primary reason I was dismissive, dismissive of it was that running a business, we could not accept Bitcoin for payments because we pay taxes in Canadian dollars. The Canadian government government mandates that we pay things like payroll taxes and business taxes and income taxes and HST all in Canadian dollars. That is a very preventative measure for accepting Bitcoin in a business. And it's the power that the government holds. So for years, I just, because of that, I kind of just dismissed it. I wanted to believe in it. I kind of was interested, but I just couldn't wrap my head around it. But after reading this particular book, the entire context of Bitcoin has changed for me. Both Nick and I have been starting mentioning it over the last couple months. You may have heard us talk about Bitcoin a bit more than we have. We've both uh, begun to acquire some Bitcoin and uh, it's just the power of this book. So it's definitely a five-star book. If you go on Amazon, there's over 400 reviews about people raving about this book. And the, the, the beginning of the book is really fascinating. The first four chapters are all around the history of money. And it's why I really appreciated the book so much because it doesn't really focus on Bitcoin. It's actually a book about money and the history of money and how humans, how we choose what we wanna use as money. And he, Seyfedin goes through everything from seashells and stones and beads to ultimately gold and silver. And the explanations that are in this book really provided clarity and a framework for me to understand how Bitcoin might evolve in our own futures. So it's the Bitcoin standard. And there's some concepts I just want to call out in the book because we didn't have enough. There's so much in the book. We didn't have enough time in the podcast to cover absolutely everything. So it was a debate whether we go broad with the discussion or whether we go deep. So I think we kind of tried to manage to do a little bit of both, but there are some concepts in the book I really want to call out that if you pick up this book or if you're listening to this podcast, really pay attention to these con concepts. One is the hardness of money. So the hardness of money is really important. Another one is time preference of money, the time preference of money. Another concept is stock to flow, stock to flow. And, and another one that we kind of kick off with near the beginning is the saleability of money, the saleability of money. For years, I had just focused on the functions of money. And I didn't quite understand the saleability of money and its importance in how humans choose what they want to use as money. It really helped me understand why gold for centuries, I mean, for over 2000 years now has been used as money. So that, that concept was really big. And then once you understand Bitcoin, you really just start to have a better understanding of inflation and deflation. You make it, it, you question if we really need inflation and how a deflationary environment may benefit us all. So that, that's a really 
really important part of the book and a, and a, a concept we don't dive too deep into in this podcast, but I'm going to see if I can get Saifedean back onto the podcast at another time. We're going to talk about that. But uh, listen, Nick and I both quit our jobs to help Canadians live life on their terms, right? That's what we wanted for ourselves. And we chose real estate as one vehicle to help us do that because in this current money system, and we actually talk about that a little bit with Saifedean on the podcast, in the current money system, real estate's one of the few ways you and I can get access to the creation of money in this current money system. And real estate has been really good. With all the pains that real estate brings, it has been really good to us. But that's real estate's not the only component we have believed to live life on your terms. We always talk about you know cash and the access to cash or currency, real money in your life. And in the past, we've talked a lot about gold and silver. And now we're talking about Bitcoin a little bit more and, and income-producing assets. You know, like good income properties. And if you're interested in income properties or the real estate component of those three buckets, you can always come out to our free training class where we talk about these concept and how, concepts and how we work with investors right across the GTA and the Golden Horseshoe. And you can register for our next class at CanadianRealEstateTraining.com. That's CanadianRealEstateTraining.com. And that's what we are doing right now, right here in 2020 with investors right through the GTA, you know, as far east as Peterborough up to Barrie and then London and Kitchener, Cambridge, Waterloo and Brantford and Woodstock and uh, the Niagara region, St. Catharines. So the whole area, whatever you want to do with real estate, we cover it at the, at the class. It's CanadianRealEstateTraining.com. And I just want to explain one other thing. We all need to understand the money game and the system of money. You know, if we really want to live life on our own terms, we have to understand the rules of the money game so that we can kind of navigate through it and kind of make it to our advantage or put it to our advantage or, or have the rules work to our advantage, I guess is a better way to say that. So it's why we're so excited to bring this episode and this particular author and this book to your attention. So if you haven't picked up a copy of this book or haven't read this book, I would highly recommend it for any of you monetary policy geeks out there. And I know that you are out there because we get emails from you. So it's not just us. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, this is a, a must have for your library. So it's called the Bitcoin standard. Um, Saifedean's email, uh, sorry, his, his, um, his website is safedean.com. And that's, um, that's uh, if you're in the car, you might not be able to write that down when I spell it out. So we're going to make it easy. If you're listening to this, if you go to rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash the Bitcoin standard. So that's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash the Bitcoin standard. You'll find the links to his website there. So it's nice and easy. So that's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash the Bitcoin standard. Okay, enough with the intro. Let's get on with the show. Are you ready to live life on your terms? Is it time to take charge? Real estate, business building, the economy, health and nutrition, and more. It's the Your Life, Your Term Show with Tom and Nick Carazza. Are you ready? Let's go. Okay, we are live with Sefedin. Am I pronouncing your last name? First of all, let me get it right as, as we do this. Am I saying it properly? Sefedin Amos. 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 Sefedin Amos. And uh, listen, I was just explaining. Sorry? The emphasis is on the end. Okay, got it. Amos. Amos. Um, listen, we were just saying as we got started before we started recording here, I'm totally thrilled to have you here. And the reason for it, the book's called The Bitcoin Standard. And because of you, I've bought some Bitcoin. I did not own any Bitcoin because of before you, but I, got, I have Bitcoin now. Um, but I just love the way that you're changing the conversation that we're all having about money. 
And I think the average Canadian, the average citizen of the world, it, we, we didn't have these types of conversations. So before we even get into the Bitcoin angle of your book, The Bitcoin Standard, can I just ask, how did you get to the point of writing this particular book? Like what's been your journey? Were you taking economics in school? Like how, how did you get to this point? I'm curious. I was doing my PhD in economics and uh, Columbia University between 2004 and 2009. And um, while doing that PhD, I came across the Austrian School of Economics and um, it really um, made me think very critically about the curriculum that I was studying and the PhD that I was writing. And it really made me change the way that I was approaching uh, the problem and the questions that I was uh, discussing. And um, as I started reading more about it, I became more and more interested in, um, uh, in, in Austrian economics and particularly in monetary economics. And then, you know, the, the global financial crisis in 2008-2009 uh, uh, grabs your attention. And um, I found it very interesting how Austrian economics related to all of that. And so from that point, I was um, captivated in particular by the topic of um, hard money and easy money and the impact of both. And I, uh, I would say one extremely influential book was a book called uh, Gold Wars by Ferdinand Lips, which is, um, it's, it's an obscure book. Very few people have read it. And uh, he, he was a Swiss banker and he writes about uh, the gold standard in Switzerland and the development of gold over time. And I found it truly uh, inspiring just um, from somebody who lived and understood the gold standard in Switzerland and, and lived uh, in the 20th century while the rest of the world was off the gold standard and Switzerland was still on the gold standard. And then um, he saw how Switzerland was uh, made to go off the gold standard eventually by the 1970s. And he described the entire process. And um, it, 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 it was quite inspiring and uh, captivating um, because it's, it's, it's a very powerful lens through which you see the world. And then Bitcoin comes along and it offers us the possibility of essentially building a Switzerland in the cloud, basically available for everybody anywhere in the world. And so the, uh, the, the captivating thing for me was thinking about the world from that lens of, you know, what would it be like if we actually had a hard money? And initially when I first heard about Bitcoin, I was uh, extremely skeptical and I dismissed the chances of working. And I didn't same here, know. same here. Yes. Yeah, everybody has to go through that. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. You spend a lot of time looking at it and, um, you know, figuring out all the reasons why it can't work, but then you see them one by one, follow, follow. And you see it just continue to operate day after day after day after day and um, started taking it seriously. And then uh, effectively, you know, I, I was on Twitter all the time talking about it and learning about it and uh, explaining it to people. And then, I decided I need to put all of these ideas into one coherent uh, book so that I don't have to explain this every day on Twitter uh, over yeah. and over again. So yeah, listen, I just want to interrupt on, on that. The first 70, I think it's 72 pages of your book, which are the first four, I, I believe four chapters. I feel you have more information in those four chapters on the history of money than I've ever read in my life. And I don't have a degree in economics, but I've done a lot of reading since the financial crisis. My brother and I, our family almost lost everything in Toronto in a real estate crash in 1990. Then we went, I was in the tech world. I was at Oracle Corporation, then NetSuite. You might've heard some of these, these companies. And I quit to start Rockstar Real Estate as um, the reason we went into real estate. We felt the average person, if they, if they understood the money system, they could use real estate to their advantage. 
buying income properties. You get first access to money when you create a mortgage. So we were trying to understand the money system as the way it works and then twist it to our personal advantage and then, help, and then help other people. So we don't like regular real estate. We just help people buy income properties all over Ontario as a, as a way to slant the system to your own personal advantage, which means you have to deal with a lot of trouble of real estate, right? You're dealing with tenants and repairs. It's definitely not a perfect model, but it does put you to, you get some of the benefit of the current money system. And yeah. so then it helps you to print money. Basically, basically you can print your own money because when I take a mortgage, when I realized that when I take a mortgage and I sign the mortgage, I am creating money out of thin air. My mind blew. I could, I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm the one creating money. And then I got excited. I started telling everybody, if you want to create your own money, get an income property. Then when you refinance it, you create your money again. And I'm not even saying any of this is right, by the way. I just no, mean That's this. how it is. And, 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 and if you don't play that system, you end up uh, basically, uh, you, you're still playing, but you're just uh, losing. You're, exactly. So Rockstar Real Estate, we have a slogan, your life, your terms. And the reason we believe in that, it's that we're trying to do things to help people live life on their terms, have individual freedom. That's our whole basis of our business, which I know sounds ridiculous, but we believe it in our core. And we've been doing this now for over a decade and helped you know, a lot of Canadians. And so then when I read this book and the way you break down the history of money, it gives me a framework and a context in which to better understand the system today. So I really want to thank you for that. And I want you to explain something. I never take notes for podcasts. I usually just record. I got all these notes for you. Um, I want you to just to, uh, explain a little bit. I used to understand money purely from the functions of money, a unit of account, a store of value, a medium of exchange. But you in your book talk about the saleability of money as the key to something being freely adapted as money. Can you talk about that? a little bit on the importance of that because that helped me understand why gold, I'm pointing to my gold chain now, everyone listening to this, you don't see this, but it helped me understand how gold became money. I always thought it was an element, a metal, I, I couldn't understand it, but when you explained it like that, my, it was another kind of light bulb moment for me. Can you talk about the saleability of money and, and how that plays a role in something becoming money? Yeah, I think, um, uh, um, yeah, I think that's a very important concept and it's one that's not really discussed often, but it goes back to Karl Menger, who's the father of the Austrian school. And uh, he, wrote a, uh, he wrote a paper called uh, The Origins of Money, On the Origins of Money. And in it, he says, what makes something win out as money is its saleability. And in particular, uh, and, and saleability refers to just the ease with which you're able to buy and sell something on the market uh, when you need to sell it. So um, the, um, the, the when you, when you when you if you use something as money, you know you the point of acquiring it as money is to exchange it later on. So it's a medium of exchange. You know you're not buying it for its own purposes. The only thing that matters is that you're able to sell it when you want to sell it because. You only buy it so that you can sell it. You know, the point of money is it's, it's acquired for it's uh, just, just to be sold. So if you acquire it just to sell it, then um, the ability with which you can dispose it or the ease with which you can dispose is quite significant in determining its success. If you buy something as money, but then every time you need to sell it, you need to wait for somebody who wants this exact specific thing then that's not very useful. So for instance, you know, if you buy um, a painting or if you buy real estate and you use that as money, 
it's not very useful because even though let's say your house is worth a million dollars and you could sell it for a million dollars, you need somebody who wants to live in this neighborhood at that time who's looking for this exact kind of house with these exact specifications, which isn't easy. You know, it's uh, the demand needs to be there for this exact house and it might take several months in order to get it. Um, so when something ends up being uh, more and more saleable, it has a larger market where you can you can expect to go and sell the good and not um, have to wait significant amount of time in order to sell it. And also, if you do sell it, you won't have to suffer a large discount on it because you're selling it to somebody who doesn't want it. So you can sell your house. Let's say you could wait for a couple of months to find the right buyer, or you can just find a real estate agent who'll pick it up from you at a significant discount. And that's why it's not good money. That's why we don't use real estate as money. And uh, you know, um, that's why all kinds of other things are not used as money, uh, perishable goods and so on. So you want something that holds on to its value. And um, in particular, I think there's the work of another economist called Antal Fakete who talks about the uh, saleability across time and across space. And uh, yeah, yeah, this specifically just really blew me away when you described this. Sorry, go, go on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, 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 you know, the saleability that you're looking for is not just being able to sell something, but also to be able to sell it across space that you can take it with you. And so that you can move somewhere else. You, you can just, you know, um, you don't want to take your home so that you can sell it elsewhere. Um, but it would be useful if you could just store your wealth in something that can be easily transportable. So that ended up helping the metals, uh, become money, but also saleability across time. You want it to hold on to its value across time. And in that, uh, you see, you, I think the saleability across time is, is the way in which we end up with gold as money because, um, the, you know, the, the more, if something corrodes, if something ruins over time, then obviously it's not going to hold on to its value very well. So that's why people don't use perishable goods and foods as money because they don't hold on to their value across time. But if we get something like, um, metals, you know, you'd expect them to hold on to their value. But then within the metals, gold is unique because it is the one metal whose supply cannot corrode. And now we have, we have a few other metals whose supply cannot corrode, but these were discovered only very recently. Uh, gold, on the other hand, was discovered many thousands of years ago. And so for thousands of years, we've been uh, digging up gold and looking for gold. People all over the world have looked for gold and dug everywhere in, in search of gold. And um, all of that gold has been piling up. So the stockpiles of gold that exist in the world are the sum of thousands and thousands of years of gold production. Now, when you put all of these uh, stockpiles on, you know, when you've produced them over thousands of years and then distributed over many people's hands, um, now, every year, the new annual production of gold is a small percentage of the existing stockpiles. And I think that metric itself is the best way to explain why um, gold ended up becoming money. It's not because it's yellow and shiny, and it's not specifically because it is uh, resistant to corrosion. Uh, it is because of the economic character of what happens to it because it has been accumulating over thousands of years, that means that every year annual production cannot be very high compared to the existing stockpiles. Therefore, the market, the, uh, the supply that is being bought and sold on the market 
is the supply that is in the hands of the holders. There are no miners who can add a significant amount of gold production on the market every year. So if you look at statistics on gold production every year, they add about one to 2% every year of the global gold supply. No matter what happens, we can never add more than one or 2% to the supply of gold every year. And it's that impossibility that allows gold to hold its value. Because if, if, you, if the miners could produce 50% of the existing stock in an annual supply increase, then our, obviously the value goes down because the replenishment is so high. And exactly. I, I know that probably sounds super simple to you. This blew my mind because I never really thought of it in that way. I never thought of it this kind of stock to flow concept. I, and again, I know it might sound simple, but I don't think many people think about things in that way. And then when you described silver having a little bit different, you know, the, the silver supply, I think in your book, you mentioned it can increase about five to 10%, maybe even up to 20% if they really push. Mm -hmm. And that's why silver didn't hold its monetary value as well as gold, just because gold had a better stock to flow. I, and I apologize if I'm using the term incorrectly, but a better stock no, to flow. Yeah. yeah. And, and then that, that just really kind of got me thinking. And I'm like, that is what makes gold valuable. And it's kind of what led me to understanding Bitcoin a little bit better. And we'll get there. I just want to ask you another question about unsound versus sound money. Because when I talk to people about money, just yesterday, I was talking to my chiropractor about money and I was telling him that I was going to be talking to you today. And, uh, and he said, well, you know, if I get some money, I'm not going to hold it because, you know, I, I, I got I to gotta put it somewhere. I got to, you know, invest it. And I said, yeah, but, and now because again of, the, of your book, I'm like, well, that's the whole problem right now. We should be able to accumulate capital and feel good about the accumulation. We shouldn't have to worry about the devaluation of the accumulation of our capital. And you have this on page 34 of your book. You said, I love this line. You say, history shows it is not possible to insulate yourself from the consequences of others holding money that is harder than yours. I love that line. Like that line is crazy to me because it made me think about Bitcoin a little bit and think, holy shit, I hope, you, I hope it's okay if I swear. Like that. <laughs> I, I, I just thought, oh my gosh, like if I don't hold Bitcoin, if I don't hold harder money, the money I'm holding is, is not going to serve me or my family. My labor is going to be disrespected in a way because if I work hard and save money and some, there's another harder money out there, it's going to hold its value better than mine. Can you talk about just the maybe unsound versus sound money or government money versus sound money briefly just to kind of help everyone understand that concept? Yeah, I think the, uh, the argument that I make in my book is that uh, gold ends up being money on the free market. Um, and historically, not just gold, whatever is the hardest thing to produce is what ends up being used as money. That's just how it works. Um, and that's in the market. That, that ends up being the choice of the market. So that's really what would be the free market money. But however, in the, um, in, uh, in, uh, when governments intervene in uh, the market for money and impose their own money, they're very likely doing that because they want to impose something that they can, um, you know, they, uh, whose supply they can inflate. So they'll usually make the money easier. So they took over the gold, they confiscated the gold from people, and then they started printing their, um, uh, their own currency, which was much easier and increases at a faster rate than their currency. And that's why we see that gold has appreciated significantly um, in, in, when measured in national currencies because, it's, uh, because the other currencies are being produced at increasing quantities. 
it's amazing to me that throughout a short period of time, generations can forget this about money. And I want to give you as an example, my, my, my father's from a small country called Croatia. My mother's from a country, Scotland. Both I, immigrants. Love Croatia. I love Croatia. Oh, oh she, now that I, if I tell him this, yeah. then uh, yeah, open invitation. He's been telling everyone how beautiful Croatia is for years. So yeah, we have a place over there. We're fortunate enough to go and hang out on the Adriatic and, and we love it. So yeah, sure. cool. We'll, we'll host you any, any time. Uh, but uh, he, uh, my family went through uh, hyperinflation in Yugoslavia in the 1990s. Yeah. And I remember my aunt. My aunt went to jail for money laundering because in the market she was selling eggs in, in a, spl- a, a town called Split. She was selling eggs. But on the side, she was taking dinars and giving German marks. She was, she was effectively because people wanted rid of their dinars. And they yeah. wanted German marks because German marks were, well, this was probably, she was doing this, I want to say late 80s, some, somewhere around there. She, she ended up going to jail over this, oh. right? She, she, she got up, but that's what people were doing. She was- The Bitcoiner she, at heart. She, <laughs> I learned so much about money from this lady. She, did, so she was collecting steel in the fall and selling it back to the construction workers in the spring. Yeah, she, was, she, was, uh, wow. she understood money. But I, uh, she said something to me. She said, Tom, the people who have nothing during hyperinflation don't lose anything. They're living hand to mouth. The people who own assets, she didn't say assets, but own stuff, they're, they're, they're going to win because they own stuff. The people in the middle who have just a bit of savings money get destroyed. And that always stuck with me. It always, I'm like, oh my gosh, the middle class is the most at risk because the poor, you don't lose anything. And I'm not, I'm not saying it's good to be poor. I just mean, you know, when a currency is kind of destroyed and it just these things that I reflect back, I'm like, people have forgotten all these lessons. My uncle from that time told me that, that uh, you know, similar things and, and these lessons seem to have just been forgotten. They told me this yeah. in the 1980s, early 1990s. Now no one seems to talk about this stuff. And I, I, wanted, I wanted to just get your thoughts on why is it important for us to have capital and be able to accumulate capital? In your book, you talk about some of the best advancements in history come from times of capital accumulation. I hope I'm remembering that correctly. Yeah. But, but why, why is it so important to you that capital accumulation is allowed to exist and the value of money holds its value? The way that I see it is that um, the, uh, from, from the Austrian perspective, uh, what determines how much people save and invest is time preference. And so when your time preference declines or you know, the time preference is the degree to which you prefer uh, the present over the future. And so when your time preference declines, you start valuing the future more and more. You start thinking about the future more and more. And when you think about the future more and more, you start delaying a gratification or you start delaying consumption, you start investing in the future. You start taking some of your resources and instead of consuming them now, you know, instead of buying things that make you happy right now, you take your resources and you invest them in things that will give you returns in the future. And the first step to that is to save. You know, before you can, before you can plant your grains, you have to first save them from not eat, being eaten. And so... Um, the way that I look at it is, and, and that's one central argument in my book, is that when the value of money is expected to hold on to, when money is expected to hold on to its value in the long term, when you know that the money that you have today will be worth, say, the same thing or plus one or two percent next year, then you're far more likely to save. And when you're far more likely to save, you start thinking more and more about the future, you start thinking more of the future. And then from the savings result, the uh, investment, then you're more likely to be investing. And then you start accumulating capital. So um, when you accumulate capital, 
um, you know, capital in, 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 in the physical sense, uh, you know, we don't even have to think about it financially. In the physical sense, you, you, you invest in making more machines. So like a fisherman, you know, instead of just catching fish with your hands every day, you start, when you lower your time preference, you start thinking about the future, you start spending some of your time building a fishing rod, and now your productivity goes up. So capital allows you to be more productive. And so when we, the, when we think of the future more, we provide for the future more by investing more. And that benefits us in the, in the long run. And when we are able to do this for, uh, you know, for generations on end, that's basically what civilization is. If, we, if we're able to live in a situation where mm. you hand over to your children a life better than mm. the one that your parents handed over to you, and then your children do the same. Oh, I never thought of it like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah generations. Yeah, and it's something I want to be mentioning in my forthcoming uh, book in more detail, uh, my textbook on economics, principles of economics, that it's once, once you get to a point where each generation reliably can give the next generation a better life, because they're all accumulating capital, because they're all saving, once you've, done, once you've gone through three, four generations of peace and no hyperinflation and the ability of people to save, then you see, you know, what emerges from that is modern civilization. And it's society being able to be uh, highly productive and peaceful and prosperous. And um, in my opinion, um, messing with the money disrupts this process massively because when you don't expect your money to hold on to its value, there's little uh, value in saving and investing becomes riskier and investing becomes um, more unattainable for most people. And it becomes, you know, as we see currently, you know, there's a enormous volatility and you can really get uh, uh, wiped out quite easily um, investing in things you don't understand. So um, when this happens, people are less likely to save and the, uh, people's time preference rises. People are less likely to think of the future. And I think that reflects not just financially, but also in all manner of uh, cultural and um, um, aspects. Yeah. I, I would love to even dive into that point specifically deeper. We'll leave, we'll leave that for now, but um... It's interesting, and, and I love it also in your book you talk about how politics has changed just a little bit. I'll go there just very briefly because when you don't have to argue about how to spend the money because you can just print it, the differences between all the political parties they all seem to fade. And and your talk about a classic liberalism, I had never. I some of my friends, a couple of friends that are there, I'm going to call them out here, Marco and Al. They always uh, kind of make fun of me that I'm like maybe a conservative, but then in your book, I learned I'm a classical liberal. So now I, I delightfully told them, hey, guys, you've misunderstood me the whole time. I'm actually a classical liberal over here. Yeah. Um, so why? So let, I just want to trash a transition over to uh, Bitcoin. So, so why, why does Bitcoin, you know, why Bitcoin? Why now? For, some, for someone like myself who just thought of it as a currency, you know, I never thought of it as anything else. I thought, ah, as a business owner, I'm never going to accept it. I have to pay my taxes in Canadian dollars. I'm, I'm not going to accept your Bitcoin. But, but you're, you know, through this discussion of saleability and all these other things, I've, I've really come to understand Bitcoin. But in your words, why, why Bitcoin? Why, why now? Well, I think uh, the, the value proposition is, number one, um, it's the hardest money ever invented. So it's harder than gold. It's, it, it, it has the same kind of hardness as gold right now. And the, the money supply of Bitcoin is increasing at around uh, one or two, uh, about 1.8%, which is roughly where gold is at this point. So... But Bitcoin's continuously declining. So in a couple of years, it'll be uh, significantly under the uh, growth rate of uh, gold. So it will be the hardest money ever. And its supply is completely fixed. So I think um, just simply 
if you're looking, you know, everybody has money, everybody has cash balances. And in, in terms of um, currencies in which to have a cash balance, I think Bitcoin is quite compelling because its supply is fixed and it is un, not related to uh, political, um, you know, there's no, there's no central bank that can change the money supply. So you're buying a fixed quantity of a supply that has been uh, very reliably and credibly adhered to over the last uh, 10, 11 years. Um, and so I think in, in this aspect, the, 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 the um, it, it can be a speculative bet that this is a better money that's going to um, um, increase in value in the future. And I think um, one Pierre Rochard, um, who's one of my good Bitcoin friends, he's uh, he says um, you can think of Bitcoin as a new category of a growth currency, and that's something that we've never had. So, you know, there's uh, there are value stocks, and then there are growth stocks. You invest in a stock of a company that is highly risky, but uh, it can have massive potential. Um, but there, there, there has never been a growth currency. There has never been an idea of investing a cash balance in a currency that is expected to appreciate. But the way that Bitcoin functions is making it into a growth currency at this point. So you, it is worth having a small little allocation from your portfolio in it because it's... Um, it, it has a strong upside potential in the same way that you might buy uh, stocks in uh, some promising uh, companies here and there. So uh, this is one aspect of it. But of course, the, the, the other aspect is the fact that Bitcoin is unstoppable money. And so it's useful uh, for many people who might find themselves uh, restricted um, from uh, dealing, uh, from sending and receiving money because of political situations. And, you know, uh, people think that, you know, sometimes when I say this, people might have the impression that this is just all about uh, criminals. And no, taxes. no. Yeah. I totally understand though. Just yeah, my own but, family's experience. I, I understand. Exactly. Yeah. You, you don't, you don't know when this happens at the bank next door. And I know this. And it's not like you're going to get the phone call either. I don't think you're not going to get the phone call and say, Hey Tom, I, I think you should go into Bitcoin now because you know, we're about to destroy the currency even further. Exactly. And I, I, you know, I, I, I speak from bitter experience in Lebanon where uh, things just escalated very quickly last summer and the dollars started to disappear from the market and the currency has been getting uh, uh, debauched since then. So a lot of people I know lost a lot of money um, over the last uh, few months and they still can't access their money. And, um, you know, the banks are out of commission now. And so you can't send and receive money outside the country um, very easily. So these, these kind of situations can be more common uh, than we'd like to think. And I think particularly around developing countries, you see a lot more of this. So I think those really are the two drivers of Bitcoin adoption. Um, on the one hand, the, oh, go ahead, go ahead, sorry. So on the one hand, the, the, the speculation on, on its role as a currency increasing in value. And secondly, you know, the... the, the uh, the technical capabilities of it, of getting around censorship and um, being a completely apolitical method of uh, moving value around the world, those two things are uh, the, the value propositions in my mind. And, and there's historical precedent, which seems obvious, I know, to you, but for the government not being the one to control the money supply of its citizens. To yes. me, growing up in North America, I think most people are completely oblivious to that. 
I, I don't think that's a, a commonly held belief. And I love, I think you talk about, I think it's the Medici family you talk about or Florence or, and you made me think about this one concept that like if, if, if way back when, uh, when, a, when, a, when an area was on a gold standard, if the ruling class wanted to go to war, they would have to tax the citizens or get more gold, but then the, the citizens could technically fight back and kind of prevent further war but yeah. b- because the, the ruling class needed their gold. So we could all band together. I'm having images of like uh, Braveheart or something like the movie Braveheart or something like that. But you could all band together and kind of rebel back a little bit. But when you can create the money at the government level, it's kind of the most incendiary form of th- theft in my mind because it, I can't, I even have difficulty explaining it to my friends of like what is happening to the value of their currency. And I, I just... I think that whole concept is lost on North America specifically, that the government does not have to be the one who controls our money supply. Yeah. And, and, and it's one of the main reasons I, I, I like your book is that you're just getting that conversation going again, right? But for those who don't, aren't familiar with Bitcoin, why, why, why would Bitcoin, how is its hardness protected? I know, I know that might sound obvious to you, but can you just explain like, how is its hardness protected? Because someone like me might come to you five years ago when I had a lesser understanding and say, well, Seyfedeen, you know what? I'm going to start the Rockstar coin. I'll start the Rockstar coin. And maybe I'm a better marketer than these Bitcoin guys and I'll just get everybody on my Rockstar coin. So yeah. then, you know, and that's what I really thought before. I go, oh, I'll just get everybody over here on this coin. But can you just talk about how the hardness is protected in your mind? Well, the way that I see it is, um, and, and, and I get extensively into this topic on my, uh, in my book, um, the, the, the thing that differentiates Bitcoin is that Bitcoin grew in the wilds of the internet on its own. Um, Bitcoin is like Tarzan uh, or Mowgli, the jungle kid, in that the, the person who uh, first made the design for Bitcoin posted it with a pseudonym. So there was no... There was no authority um, of somebody claiming any authority on it. The, the person who posted it posted it without their name. Um, and it was, you know, it lived by its own code. It lived by its own merit. And he disappeared a couple of years after after uh, beginning the uh, project. He just disappeared. And the thing continued. And I think this is really the amazing thing, that the person behind it left and the thing continued to operate. And since then, many people have tried to change it and to make it, to alter it in ways in which they thought were better. And they've all failed at uh, doing that, suggesting very, very strongly and compellingly that nobody really controls Bitcoin. Nobody can control it. And so the the distributed nature of it means that um, it's, 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 it's there are these main consensus parameters of the network that were established when it was uh, built. And the only way the network works, the only way that you can uh, access the Bitcoin network and use those Bitcoin coins is if you use those consensus parameters. If you want to change any of those consensus parameters, the only way that you can do so would be through um, uh, getting essentially everybody to agree with you. And so if everybody who's using the Bitcoin network agrees to shift and change the consensus networks, then we can change them. But otherwise, it's just going to continue to operate with each new 10-minute block. You're going to continue to arrive at consensus at the old uh, consensus parameters. And so these parameters essentially, um, you know, the most important for me is the money supply. And we see that over 11 years, nobody has managed to alter the way in which the money supply um, changes. 
um, in which the money supply is, uh, is provided. And that is because nobody's able to change anything in Bitcoin. Nobody's able to herd the more than 10,000 cats all over the world that are the Bitcoin network members to try and get them to agree at once to change the rules of, of the network. It's, it's, it's extremely hard to be able to do it. And this is something that cannot be done with Bitcoin. And, and every, with every passing day, this just gets harder to do because with every passing day, the network grows stronger and the number of people increases. And that's one more person that you need to convince. And also, you know, what has become clear over the past few years is that the people who joined Bitcoin have joined it because of the fact that it doesn't have anybody in charge. And so as soon as somebody comes up with a proposal that in any way suggests giving them any kind of power, not even talking about changing the money supply, you know, it's even the most trivial, um, well, not most trivial, but even some trivial technical specifications of the network, as soon as these come up, you know, that person just becomes almost like a pariah. And, and, and then Bitcoin is is just always going to be extremely unruly. Now, on the other hand, if you were to set up another coin, once Bitcoin had already taken off, you know, once the Tarzan had survived the jungle and had come out of it a strong, powerful uh, warrior, then trying to throw another uh, kid into the wild, they were not going to have a chance to survive against Tarzan. Um, effectively, with Bitcoin out there as an, a decentralized network that nobody controls, it was always going to be more likely that you would get other... If, if you do build another coin, you're never going to have the um, liquidity and size that uh, Bitcoin has. And so therefore, you're not going to be able to uh, compete on the free market with Bitcoin because Bitcoin has already gotten a much bigger liquidity, much bigger saleability than an upstart that starts from zero. So the only way that you can get that upstart to compete, and I think this is really the key thing, is if you were going to start your rockstar coin, the only way that you could get it to compete is that you'd have to protect it from free market competition and effectively be in charge of it. And so the only projects that can survive uh, after Bitcoin was invented, after Bitcoin was made, are projects that have had people in charge of them. And if you look at all the other coins, that uh, people say are competitors to Bitcoin, which I think are not competitors to Bitcoin. You know, you look at all of the ones that have achieved any kind of name recognition anywhere in the world, and you'll see that they've only managed to achieve that name recognition because there's a small group of people behind them that run them like a startup. And there's nothing wrong with the startup model and with running startups, but there is, once you have a startup behind your currency, then it's clear that your currency is not a neutral protocol that nobody can use. That currency is something that is uh, proprietary and can be changed. And so Bitcoin is nobody's startup. Bitcoin doesn't have a CEO. It doesn't have a board of directors. It doesn't report to anybody. It's just some code that's out there in the wild. And you can either use it as it is or you can uh, you know, not use it. Those are your only two options. And, and I, I think, you know, it, it's like the saleability of Bitcoin seems to be increasing just every day to me as, as more and more adoption. And for me as an individual, I feel like it's the first time I can own sovereign money or base. I don't know how you would call it like base layer money. 
Yeah. You know, I feel like, I feel there's such power in that. I feel like, and I don't mean to become a, an evil mastermind by any means. I just mean for myself, there's a certain security in that feeling. Liberating. Very, thank you. Very liberating. And I just want to wrap up with this. How do we, maybe this is a little bit of a prediction on your part. How do we transition from a system that's the fiat standard today? To, to one that is based on hard money, I feel like there's massive disruption ahead to get to go from here to there. And it, it might be worth the journey. I think it would be worth the journey. But have you, have you mapped that out anywhere? And maybe you have and I've kind of missed it. But how do we go from today to a, a better system? What's that going to look like? Part of me gets a little scared. I'm just being fair, open with you of how we transition to that. What, what are, what's your thinking? How do we go from a fiat system to, to maybe one based on hard money? That's basically the topic of, the, um, or, or one of the main topics of my next, well, my other next book, the third book that I'm working on, and that's called The Fiat Standard. So, uh, Great. So I'm selfishly going to request for you to come back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bother you a little bit to, to come back on. I know you're so busy, so I appreciate this. Well, I'm I busy got because it. I'm writing it. So I know, I know. Uh, let me finish writing it and then I'll, I'll be okay. back when it's done. But um, you can see on my website, I have these research papers that I used to write for subscribers. And uh, the book is based on these. And some of these also discuss that question. So if you go to my website, safedeen.com slash research, uh, you'll see some of these papers on Bitcoin, hype, on Bitcoin monetization scenarios and how it is that we could move to a world in which Bitcoin uh, proceeds. And then there's another one called How to Kill Bitcoin which is, uh, you know, the, the other alternative scenarios in which Bitcoin doesn't succeed. So I do discuss these and I, I you know, I think it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty extensive and very long discussion in, in both papers. Um, but I would, uh, and I don't have time to get into all the scenarios that I mentioned, but I think, you know, my favorite and the one that I optimistically like to cling on to is, um, is that it's going to be all right. You know, people are really uh, insisting that it has to be apocalyptic, but I think- um, Human nature, maybe it's human nature. Maybe it's human nature, but I think it's also justifiable because generally when you get hyperinflation, when you get currency collapse, or when you get a transition from one currency to the other, these currencies that are collapsing are monopoly currencies that don't allow alternatives and that don't have alternatives. So. You know, if you're in Yugoslavia and you're witnessing the Yugoslavian currency collapse and the Yugoslavian banking system collapse, you no longer have access to money to send abroad or to trade and your currency doesn't work and your bank account doesn't work and your credit card doesn't work, everything doesn't work. And so the, the, the economic system crumbles, the supply chains crumble, all of the capital that we've built up over many, many years for production, all of that stops being functional and crumbles. And that's what we see happening in places like Venezuela right now. So when that happens, um, you know, the production system falls apart because of the collapse of the currency. But I don't think that would necessarily be the, that has to be the case with Bitcoin. Because with Bitcoin, um, we're, I, I don't think it's going to be that we, uh, okay, places like Venezuela might have their hyperinflation, but um, it's, it's not Bitcoin that's going to bring about the hyperinflation. I think the way that I see it happening with Bitcoin is that people will just transition to Bitcoin. And so by the time we all transitioned to Bitcoin, nobody was ever in that spot where, the, where, where they didn't have stuck the monetary system. You know? Nobody ever had to go back to um, 2000 BC monetary system for a few months because that's, you know, that's what's destroying Venezuela. When, when you go back to a monetary system that's primitive where people go back to barter, 
um, with Bitcoin, I see it as an upgrade. We're not going to destroy the dollar and the national currencies uh, first and then move to Bitcoin. We're going to move to Bitcoin. And I think, you know, and, that, and that's the kind of crazy uh, idea in my uh, fiat standard. The punchline is that Bitcoin is the way that we manage the disorderly. Uh, God, it gives you like an anchor. It gives you an anchor and also, you know, every, uh, remember the, the monetary system, as you were saying, it, it, it creates money, you know, the, every time the debt is created. So money in the fiat system is made out of debt. Now, Bitcoin allows us to uh, basically solve that problem by nicely putting aside the house of cards one card at a time, because uh, as you transition from a debt-based um, uh, economy in which you own a lot of debt, and you owe a lot of debt to a lot of people and your entire business and your entire life is revolving around several debt. If you transition to a Bitcoin economy, you know, after 10 years of slowly stacking Bitcoins, uh, then let's say you go from 1% of your net worth uh, in Bitcoin and in 10 years, it's 99% of your net worth in Bitcoin. Well, then the debt is, um, becomes an insignificant part of your life. You pay it off. And then as more and more people pay off their debt, the debt-based monetary system shrinks into irrelevance and the new monetary system is built around the hard asset. So I don't see why that has to be a horrible and painful transition because it's, it's more like an upgrade. Like, in, in, you know, the, the current monetary system is, enough, is good enough for it to function um, in, in its hugely dysfunctional way. And as soon as it stops dysfunctional, as soon as it stops working for you, you have a Bitcoin alternative. So it's just a matter of time before everybody Figure this, figures this out and jumps onto the alternative. Got it. I like that thinking. Much more positive than I was envisioning in my mind. So thank you for, for laying that out. <laughs> um, listen, I, I mentioned I, I hand out your books everywhere. If, if, if someone, if you want to dive into this, you have to, I, I very rarely tell anyone they have to get this book. The Bitcoin Standard, just read the reviews on Amazon. It says everything you need to know about why you need to read this book. The Bitcoin Standard. I uh, purchased uh, some of your courses online. I haven't got to the research papers yet though. So now you've motivated me to get to your research papers. So if you want more information, safedine.com is the place to go um, for your courses and reports and all that kind of stuff. Correct? Yes. Safedine.com. I teach online courses and we have live seminar discussions every Thursday, which you can join. And, uh, you know, you download the course, you get all the video lectures and uh, discussion sessions. And we're constantly adding new courses um, that will be taught live. And uh, there's also some of my research and you can also find uh, my book in uh, almost 20 languages now. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and you're very kind. You, you patiently answer questions. I spoke up and asked a question and I immediately felt like it was the silliest question anyone had asked you on one of your courses. So thank you for, <laughs> for oh, entertaining no. me with the answer. But listen, I want to honor your time. Seyfedin, thank you so much for this. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you for all the work you are doing. I really feel this is an important thing that you're doing for all of us. So please know there's people out here motivating you to keep doing what you're doing. Thank you. I mean that thank very you. sincerely. Thank you for taking the time appreciate for this it. as well. Thank you very much. Have a good day. Hey everyone, it's Tom Kradzis. Hopefully you enjoyed that chat. We did it over Zoom, but I think the audio came out pretty well on that, on that particular one. 
Saifedean's website again is just saifedean.com, which is S-A-I-F-E-D-E-A-N.com. The book is the book, The Bitcoin Standard. You can find links to this stuff at rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash The Bitcoin Standard. That's rockstarinnercircle.com forward slash The Bitcoin Standard. If you haven't picked up this book, highly recommend it just on many levels, not just Bitcoin, just your understanding of money will just increase so much. Fantastic read. Um, thanks, Saifedean, for coming on the podcast. Really appreciate it. That's it for now. Until next time, your life, your terms.